It's a wonderful privilege to be here, and uh, thank you. It's a particular honor uh, for me. It, it took me by surprise um, because uh, it has been a journey of my life. By the time that I, I got my doctorate, I was um, older than all the uh, professors except one. Uh, so uh, I want to encourage all of you that think that you're kind of if you have the inclination to study and you think you're kind of late to the party, just keep plugging along. There are benefits, too, to where uh, you're pulling your hair out when you're uh, middle age. I'm not claiming to be middle age now unless I'm going to live to be uh, in 140, uh, which, you know, I'm okay with. Um, but um, uh, along the way, you know, pastoring a church, raising a family, and then also trying to formalize uh, my education and uh, in, uh, in the work that God had called me to do, uh, it, it was often difficult. But it was a path the Lord chose for me and was formative uh, for my life in so many ways. So I thank you for uh, the honor and I, I thank all of you that, uh, uh, that are uh, in this course of study. Let me read from the Word of God this morning from Jeremiah chapter 29. And I, I do I want to mention before we read uh, that um, Pastor Aaron and, and Deborah have been so dear to me and other the leaders of the church. Uh, and um, they always tell me that I've encouraged them and all, but they've been a real encouragement to me uh, as well. And especially since in, uh, retiring from the church that I pastored, uh, in, uh, they have been very helpful in encouraging me to continue on uh, and uh, staying in the game and connecting with people. And uh, so if you are looking at retirement or you're in retirement, make sure to stay engaged. Uh, don't, don't stay home and watch TV. Get, get out and, uh, and carry on God's work. Until, until we stop breathing air, the Lord has a job for us. Amen? Amen. Jeremiah 29. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of uh, Elasa, the son of Shapham, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying. Now, I want to read those first few verses to give context that, that we're, we're being told who this letter is coming from, who it's sent to. Notice uh, the main recipient is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. But it's actually for the, uh, the Jewish people who have been carried away uh, to and exile. So this is a great shift in the time of, uh, of the history of Israel. This is not going to be the Israel uh, of uh, Moses or the Israel of David or Solomon. Uh, this begins a new chapter where Israel comes to mean a scattered people uh, that are without land, uh, which has been the case through much of history. So here's the letter. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, whom I have caused. Build houses, 
and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so they may bear sons and daughters that you be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it for in its peace you will have peace. I want to talk to you about because this this has become a really important letter to me and and I I think it has real significance for us today. As Aaron had mentioned that I've finished writing a book that took me right at 4 years called Faith in the Age of AI and I didn't know I was writing a book I actually was trying to find a way of integrating my studies in psychology with theology and I was just sit sit a I had a, a set of uh, 17 statements I'd created about that, so about how mental health practitioners who are Christian do their work efficiently and effectively, but consistent with their Christian life. And then I began to write a commentary on each of the uh, points and was sending it to friends, but it was kind of a mess. Uh, but as time went on, I began to see that uh, the social media uh, and emerging technologies like artificial intelligence uh, were putting us in a very different place than we'd ever been before, whether in mental health or in, um, uh, in uh, Christian life. And so uh, as I began to see that and to do more studies into these uh, areas, uh, then um, uh, I began to realize that this may have a wider distribution, but I didn't know what to do with it. And God sent a a science fiction writer to see me that had not been to church for a long, long time. And, and, uh, and I have her permission to tell a story, but she's, she said, uh, this, I, I want to read what you're writing. I'm going to say, it's a mess. And it's, by, it's mostly about theology. I don't think you'll be, no, I want to read this. So she read it. And then after about a month, she came back to me and she wept and she said, I, I need to go back to church. I could find the Lord through this book. It needs to be out there. And would you allow me to work with it so that we can uh, get it published? And so that, that's a story of why I wrote the book and uh, how the book came to be written. But on the context of this, uh, of this letter, imagine yourself as a, a Jewish person uh, that is that first generation of Jewish people living outside of the Holy Land. You've lost your temple the king, you've lost the monarchy, you've lost your sense of your, your nation. Uh, you, are, uh, you have uh, gone uh, into exile, you've watched all the pillage and the war, you've had the trauma of all of that, watching a lot of dead bodies and so forth, and then the long march to Babylon. And you've been here for a while, and it's just still disillusioning. This is not your country, these are not your people, you don't speak their language, you don't like their foods. Uh, it's It's hard. And then someone tells you that there's going to be a communal meeting of all of Jewish people in the area and that they're going to read a letter from no less than Jeremiah the prophet. And your heart is just swelling. Oh, we're going to go back. We're going to go back home. Life's going to be the way it was. Oh, and there's this joy and sense of expectation. A word of hope is coming from God through the prophet. And so they gather and as the letter is read, you begin to look around and people are bewildered. And you realize 
this is not what you expected at all. Because it says, it's not the devil that did this to you, but the Lord has done it. The Lord has taken you into captivity, into Babylon. And not only that, I want you to pray for the inhabitants in whose land you dwell, that it may go well with them, because if they prosper, you will prosper as well. And by the way, you're going to be there for a while. Your kids are going to get married. They're going to have children. And then later in, as the letter goes on, he says, way down the road somewhere, I'm going to regather you from all the lands where I have driven you. And it's just bewildering to hear this. And I can't imagine that everybody said, well, praise God. This is a discouraging letter. But I think it's a letter that we need to hear because this was the first generation, but not the last of Jewish people who had to adapt and adapt and adapt. All through history, Jewish people have settled down for a few generations, made their home, learned a new language, got into the culture of of the country, and then been driven out to yet another land. And this has occurred throughout, throughout history. I knew a little bit about what they were experiencing. I've never, you know, my city wasn't pillaged and all that, and I've never been sold into slavery. But uh, my parents were missionaries, and we were um, uh, we were living happily in uh, southern West Virginia. With it's, I mean, a foreign country was Ohio. <laughs> um, and, you know, with our own kind of dialect and our own kinds of ways of life and so forth, especially in those times. Uh, and uh, my parents uh, became missionaries. And so uh, in my teens, we, we, we were literally one day uh, in southern West Virginia, you know, and uh, we're, you, you know, you, you eat squirrels and all that. And then, uh, and it Really, it's it's it was own world, and then uh, just two days later, uh, I'm in the middle of a city of cobblestone roads and and old cars and mostly uh, uh, horse and uh, donkey you know carts and and uh, and the smells of different you know foods cooking out in the streets and the people with different costumes and i'm hearing uh, the uh, spanish and quechua in the streets and uh, and i didn't understand any of it and it's just bewildering now if you like to be a tourist if you like to go to different countries i do um, I don't know if I would have if I hadn't had this experience, but I like to go. I've been to Japan several times, and I've been, uh, I've been privileged to be able to go to lots of different countries. I always want to enjoy, I want to learn the foods there. And I ate whatever they serve me, and I ask them, you yeah, yeah, bring it on. Uh, and I try it, and, and I, I like it or don't like it. Usually I'm okay with it. And I want to learn a few uh, words in the language there. And that's really fun, especially if I'm there a couple of weeks. It's great because I'm really starting to feel my my way around like, yeah, I like it here. But you know, that's, that experience goes away if you're there a few months. That's the tourist experience. But if suddenly, as in our case, you know you're not going home for a long, long time. 
you're going to have to learn the language. And I went to school and, and uh, I, had, I had to go to school, you know, just like back home. Uh, only I'm, I'm studying in another language sometimes. I did have English in my school, but also there was Spanish. And then, of course, the church was all Spanish-speaking and everybody out in the street was speaking Spanish. Uh, and uh, I did also try to learn Quechua. So there's a couple languages going on there. And, 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 and uh, I, I just was bewildered and, and, uh, and dislocated for some time. But then if you go through that experience... After a while, then you begin to adjust and, and you come out on the other side and you become a bicultural person, a bilingual person, uh, and, uh, and, and that makes you kind of new as well because from now on, you will be kind of at home everywhere and not fully at home anywhere. That's what they call a third culture child. Let me shift just for a moment and tell you that every one of you are becoming third culture children now. Alan Toffler told us that this would occur in 1970. In 1970, Alan Toffler wrote a, a, a surprising bestseller called Future Shock. And in Future Shock, he started out talking about culture shock like I've just told you. But then he said, in just a few years, he said, people are going to be living in the town that they were born in and have lived all their life, and they're going to experience uh, culture shock. And he said, here's why. He said, we already, for the last few decades, and this is 1970 again, uh, we have been learning as much, we've been going through as much technological and social change uh, in uh, 10 years that, that used to take 100 years or more. And this has been going on for some decades. And he said, soon it's going to be every five years, we're going to have that amount of change in every five years. And after that, he said, it's going to be every two and a half years. And he said, within 50 years, and remember that's 1970. He said, within 50 years, he said, uh, change will be so continuous that you will not be able to adjust. He said, the first few decades, people will adjust. They won't like it, they'll adjust. They won't like it, they'll adjust. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, they're adjusted now and this is the new world. This is the way the world is. But finally, he said, people are not gonna be able to adjust because the changes are going to be continuous and dislocating all the time. And he said, as a result, there's going to be a lot of social rage throughout the world, and he said, we are in for a real ride because people are not equipped for this kind of change. So, I mean, I'm going to give a title to this sermon today and, and call it uh, The Cure for Future Shock. This is one of the most pro, uh, prophetic books that were have been written in my time uh, by this uh, sociologist, uh, Alan Toffler, and it's, um, it, now if you would read it, you would say, well, duh. But that was in 1970. We are going through such a time right now, and we have been going through it now for a number of years, and it's not going to get any better, and we're not going to adjust to it. So we need Jeremiah's letter. Pray for the inhabitants in whose land you dwell that it may go well with them. You know what I notice when people, uh, what a lot of people will do when they find someone that doesn't speak their language and they're trying to communicate, I would like a hot dog, please. And they're like, well, you know, and they get, and hot dog, hot dog, hot dog. And then, you know, it's like, 
they're they're not understanding me deliberately. I, I get this in I would get this in Quebec all the time. English speakers would come through and said, "People Quebec, they're just they just they." I went to the McDonald's. I tried to order. They wouldn't uh, they wouldn't even take my order because they uh, they were so mad that I didn't speak French. And I'm like. Uh, well, it could be that they didn't speak English too. It's like, no, they do this deliberately. Well, do you speak French? No, I don't. Do you have any intention to learn French? No. Okay, so that that might be also their position. You know, there's people like that in every culture. But what we do, we just raise our voice. And that always helps, right? Do you know that's what we're trying to do many times with our faith now? Our neighbors, our neighbors, and sometimes our neighbors are people that look like us, talk like us, but their, their families have not been in church for generations. And so they come out with a, their opinions and we get angry at them and we shout at them. And if, uh, and if we're uh, not, uh, if we don't have enough courage to do it to their face, we do it on social media and we, uh, we insult them. And so uh, we expect them to straighten up, Right. But the fact is, they are inhabitants of this land that we're now in. And those of us, particularly people like me, my age, we are kind of aliens in this land. And the word of Jeremiah is, if you wish to adjust, you've got to pray for the inhabitants in whose land you dwell, that it may go well with them. Now, what's caused this change? Here, I've been living in this country all my life, and what has changed? I'm going to tell you what's changed. What has changed is uh, that from about 1910 to about uh, 2010, four scientific breakthroughs uh, have altered the way we view reality. The theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, information theory from which comes all the computers and internet, et cetera, and AI, and the genome project with all the genetic engineering stuff that goes along with that. Those things together in these different, different fields have created an environment to where the younger you are, the, the, uh, the more likely it is that you define reality much different than your grandparents. They, because all these, these are very different uh, things in, in different fields, but together they have uh, radically uh, rethought what, it, what reality is all about. And when you think of that and that people may be seeing the world in very different ways than you do because they wear a different color of glasses than you do and they're looking at, at, at the world through very different kinds of, uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, of glasses, uh, when you realize that, you stop yelling at them and you can start praying for them and showing them the grace of God. That's what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Do you know what Daniel went to the lion's den because he served God and finally the king asked him to do something he couldn't do, right? You know the story. And when he was in the lion's den, all night long the king was so upset. Why have I done this? This is my friend. He serves me faithfully. And I don't know because they're on different pages. They come from different places. And, and Nebuchadnezzar did what he thought he had to do as head of state. Daniel did what he thought he had to do in serving God. And in the morning, uh, Daniel uh, gets up and, and, the, and the king is there. Daniel, are you alive? And he's and with the lions and he said, oh, king, live forever. I would have said, oh, king, drop dead. But Daniel did not. Uh, there was that kind of uh, hospitality and grace. Uh, so 
uh, as I began to really research for this, this book, I began to uh, make another discovery, and that is Christians have a more important voice in this era than we did in the past era. In the past era, we were in control of things, right? We ran everything, uh, uh, particularly in, in, the, in the Southeast. You know, uh, the, if the, the mayor did, didn't go to church, he wasn't going to be reelected. Uh, so, you know, dog catcher had to go to church. I mean, uh, you know, you, that's the first question in the South, you know, is like, where do you go to church? And so you got to go to the right church as well. You know, you, you can't say, well, I just, I go to the church of the greater consciousness and awareness. Like, no, you're not going to get elected mayor. Uh, you know, you, you need to go to a real church. And so, um, all that's over. And a lot of us are really, uh, uh, kind of disoriented by that, uh, particularly older people. But that time is not coming back ever. And, uh, and so uh, if we get worked up in it and we just worked up about this and we feel like that we've, we've got to really show our, our teeth and our strength and take the country back over again in that way, uh, not only will we fail to do that and we will fail to do that, uh, we will also be giving up our faith and the essence of our faith because our faith says, pray for the inhabitants of whose land you dwell. You say, well, what are, what's going to happen to us? Well, I would say, look at the Jews. They haven't done too badly. They've had difficulties and suffering, unbelievable suffering. But you know, they've also been a light to the Gentiles. Uh, I think they are, they're less than 1% of the world's population, Jewish people are, and they, uh, they win 32% of all the Nobel Prizes in all fields. And on and on and on they serve. So I began to realize, and I want to leave you with these things. What do we do? I think that we need to realize that some of the great, greatest questions of our age were thought through already by the first five centuries of Christian thinkers. What is a disembodied intelligence? What, what are some of the great questions of our time? What is a person? What does it mean to be conscious? All those kinds of questions that are now coming about. And will I still be a human being if half of me is robot? And all those kinds of questions. Believe it or not, they, they were prompted by different uh, things uh, to come up with this. But in the first five centuries of the church, some of the greatest thinkers that have ever lived wrestled in the light of God's word to give an answer for these kinds of things. The, even in the New Testament, a disembodied intelligence is called a power and a principality. And we have to deal with powers and principalities, but we're not to give them our ultimate loyalty. So, you know, chat GPT, go ahead and, and, and work with it. Uh, but uh, your disembodied kind of intelligence on the screen or, or a smart robot is not a person not made in the image and the likeness of God. You're, you're tempted to think it is, but it is not. Here's some things I think we need to do. One, we need to recover, desperately, we need to recover our Christian intellectual tradition. Uh, we, we, must, we must put our, uh, our minds to work. This is not an era to where you can just say, well, I, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior, and other than that, I go to work every day, and then at the end of the trail, uh, after many potlucks uh, with the people of God, uh, then I will be whisked away. Uh, you, your, your faith will not survive that, that kind of naive patience of what you believe. 
And, and you know that we have a ground to stand going into and in ways in some ways that secular thinkers uh, do not know. Uh, one of the, uh, in a hearing before the, uh, uh, the uh, House of Representatives a few weeks ago, one of the tech guys said, uh, AI programs are tools, not creatures. But he said, even our programmers forget that. Well, we don't forget it because we are, one, we're not to have idolatry. We, we don't have any gods before God. And also we do not assign a, a human worth to anything other than human beings, right? Here's another thing. Uh, we've got to refocus on living godly lives. There is no way that we can be monsters in, in the name of Jesus to go out there and just, you know, by force take over people's lives and make people serve the Lord. And not only will they not do that, it, it, it's going to make us not Christians. We're going to lose our own Christian faith in the name of defending Christian faith. This has been done before. In the Crusades, it was done. So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have to live lives of sobriety and kindness. And, 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 and Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is still in the Bible. Amen? I know we don't hear it preached very much in church, but go home and read it. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the Lord's declaration. You've heard about the communist manifesto. This is the Christian manifesto. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Lord tells us how he wants his people to live. And if we don't believe that and we have to make excuses why we don't live in that kind of way, then we, it shows you the erosion of our faith that's occurred. A third thing, and I have sensed this this morning, our churches have to recover a sense of divine transcendence. When people walk out of the door, they, don't, they, they need to not feel manipulated, but they need to say, I've been in the house of God. Something has occurred to me. The unbeliever needs to say, whoo, I don't know kind of what that was, but that's like, I just like got my chill bumps all over. I don't know what that was, but there was a moment in there to where I'm like, whoo. And, and what that is, is what the writer of the Hebrews called tasting of the powers of the world to come. The Apostle Peter said, we are not, that we have not been uh, uh, following cleverly devised fables. We have seen something real. We saw Jesus transfigured on the holy mountain. We saw the resurrection. We, we witnessed the, uh, his uh, ascending into glory. And so we are eyewitnesses. Well, is there anybody here can say, there have been moments in my life when I knew that I knew that I knew that the veil had separated a little bit and I was in the presence of a living God and that I was not following cleverly devised fables or just a set of rules. I mean, more and more Christians are going to say it's not worth it unless when they come together, they realize two or three are gathered, but there's a, another presence there that makes all the difference. Amen. That, that has to become reality. And finally, we need a stewardship that includes a sense of vocation and what we're called to do. God doesn't call us all to be missionaries, and he doesn't call us all to be pastors of churches, but he calls all of us to do something. He calls people to be doctors and nurses. He calls people to, uh, to run uh, gasoline stations and general stores, and he calls us to do all kinds of things. And some of the things he calls us to do seem menial at the time, but many times that's the small hinge upon which a great door has swung open for, for other people. And, uh, and, and for the world. We don't, we don't know why we're assigned in seasons of our lives things that we're assigned to. And for some of us, for many of us, the great thing that God's called us to do is to be a parent. 
or be a good uncle or aunt or to be a good neighbor to someone that's hard to live beside. And, and down the road somewhere, God has an encounter. Something is going to occur there that we have to be faithful and we have to renew our sense of vocation. You know the difference between vocation and occupation, right? An occupation is just what you work at. It just means to occupy. It means to be, you're there, right? At least in body. But a vocation is a calling. It comes from vocati, to call. And when God calls you to do something and you are present in that something, whatever it is, big or small, little as much when God is in it. And we have to recover, recover that. Well, I do, those are kind of my scattered thoughts. I think Jeremiah's letter set the stage. Jews learned how to do this. They've done it again and again and again. And we're going to have to learn how to do it as well, how to be compassionate and kind strangers, to know when to blend in and when we can't blend in, to know what, what we can participate in and what we can't, but to do it as graciously as possible and to be that living presence of Christ in a very changed world. So anyway, I'll leave you this. This, is, this comes from my long roots and uh, it, will, uh, it will help kind of pull all this scattered uh, sermon together. Life is filled with swift transition. Not of earth unmoved can stand. Place your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Put your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Trust in God. He'll never leave you. Whatsoever the years may bring. And if your friends, they all forsake you. Still more closely to him cling. You got to hold to God's unchanging hand. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Place your hopes on things eternal. And hold to God's unchanging hand. Amen. Amen.